Matthew 21, 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are glad that you're here on this Palm Sunday. Hopefully um, you saw the donkeys out front, right, for our kids' side. They're having a great time today, seeing some really cool stuff. Um, Palm Sunday starts what is known as, in church history on the church calendar, um, Holy Week. And and maybe you didn't grow up in church. Maybe you you don't know what this means. Uh, The word holy means like separate or distinct. And so um, starting today... And this week leading up to Easter is sort of separate and distinct in Jesus' life. Uh, The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are like mini biographies of Jesus. And so maybe you're unfamiliar with the scriptures. Those are like four different accounts of Jesus' life. And Holy Week is so important that the majority of the Gospels actually spend most of their time on the last week of Jesus' life. That's how important and that's how distinct it is. But there's something that we tend, uh, well, quite frankly, to miss um, about Palm Sunday. We, we sort of think that it's a precursor that leads us um, to Easter. But the reality is, and even in our text, if we're not careful, we can miss the significance of this day. And, and, and maybe this will help as an illustration. December 17th, 1903, these guys, Wilbur and Orville Wright, known as the Wright Brothers, were in Kill Devil Hills, North Carolina, and for the first time ever, for 12 seconds, at 120 feet, they flew what they were calling at the time their flying machine, okay? So it wasn't even an airplane yet. It was called a flying machine. And they flew it, and it's a significant moment um, in human history because man flew for the very first time. So they were extremely excited, and they went and sent a telegraph to their sister, Catherine, back home. And the telegraph said this, We have actually flown 120 feet. We'll be home for Christmas. 
I mean, so Catherine is so excited. She gets the telegram, runs to the local newspaper to spread the news that hometown boys have literally just changed human history as we know it. And history records that the editor of the paper got the telegraph, looked at it, read it, and said, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. And completely missed the fact that they had just flown the first airplane, right? I mean, blew right over this guy. In our passage today, um, there is a crowd of people, huge numbers of people, who completely miss what is taking place and what is happening about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And Westside, please listen to me today. Whether you've grown up in church and this is your umpteenth Palm Sunday that you know everything about, or maybe you don't know anything about this and you're sort of peeking over the fence at Christianity. Listen, if we're not careful today, we will miss the significance of what is taking place. And in Matthew's gospel, I hope you have your Bible with you, he tells us sort of what's going on, what we need to look for. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, in our passage, it says this, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. That phrase, stirred up, is actually um, where we get our word seismic from. So like to measure an earthquake, the seismic, like, I mean, literally the town was quaking, seismic. There were large crowds. We also know in John's gospel that the reason why there's all of these crowds is because Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the grave. So now they're like, this dude just raised somebody from the dead. We're going to follow him. So there's a lot going on. And then it says this, the crowd was saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Listen, the whole purpose of Palm Sunday, the whole reason why Matthew records this scene is to answer this question. Who is Jesus? this. What's going on? What's happening? What's taking place? Now, it's important to know a little bit of history and context as well, because some of you are like, what's up with the palm branches and then the Shrek character? Like, why is the don't? What's going on? Listen, okay, you got to learn a little bit of the context. 160 years before Jesus was born, there was what was known as the Jewish revolt, which was led by this man, Judas Maccabees. Now, his father also initiated the revolt some years before him. Here's what you got to know about the Jewish people. In Jerusalem, the Jewish people were living under Roman rule, right? So it's kind of similar to us here in the States. Like, you know, we have the state of Missouri and Governor Parsons, but there's also a federal government as well. Well, back then, they were under the suppression of the Roman government in Jerusalem. And 160 years before Jesus was born, the Roman emperor outlawed Jewish worship, said that you can't even go to the temple and worship. Well, the Jewish people were dismayed by this. And so Judas Maccabees led the revolt and literally declared war on the Roman Empire and took back the worship in the temple. The Jewish people still celebrate this today known as Hanukkah which is the dedication of the temple worship again. When Judas, Maccabees, enters into the city after Rome allowed them to worship, the people waved palm branches, 
symbolizing the victory that had taken place. So they literally, on coins, put Judas's head and face, and on some ancient coins today, you can still see palm branches that symbolize that. And the people lay their cloaks out on the ground. We know from 1 Kings that that symbolizes a king, royalty, that the people, when Israel got a new king, they laid their cloaks down as a sign of submission. So all of this is taking place. And when the people say Hosanna, that's not a worship term. Hosanna is literally a political statement. Hosanna translates, save us now. So, do you have the scene? This is what's happening. Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the last week of his earthly life. And they know what's taking place, and they say, save us, God, save us. This is our new Savior. But they had entire expectations of how God was going to say. You see, when they say, save us, what they're saying is, save us like you did in the past. Or better yet, save us like we are expecting you to. You see, they were expecting a Savior, but they had some false concepts as to what that Savior was going to be. And you see, we're so different from people in the Bible, right? We're not expecting some political Savior or anything like that, right? And, and listen, we have sort of an expectation Maybe sometimes it's uncommunicated. Maybe sometimes it is communicated as to what Jesus is supposed to be for us. Listen, that's the whole point of the passage. Who is this? They had expectations. And listen, Jesus comes in and shatters their expectations. And I thought, we have some concepts of Christ. And then we, there are some really false concepts of Christ that are, that are extremely popular. The first one being this. Um, Jesus is sort of the inspirational teacher, right? I mean, so whether it be like Gandhi or Buddha and, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And, man, we love those scriptures. Love when Jesus is like, love one another. And we really love on social media the inspirational teacher, Jesus, with the do not judge. So anytime you see like a Facebook argument happening, just wait and hold your breath and someone's going to drop. Well, in your Bible, it says don't judge, right? And so we love that because we love the inspirational teacher, Jesus, the problem with that is, is that if he's just an inspirational teacher, he's a real bad one. Because he says things like, you need to lose your life, and you're actually not good enough, and, and you actually need saving. Um, or how about this second one, Jesus as the social activist. So it's all about social justice reform. And that, now, listen, do I believe that the implications of the gospel and the implications of the kingdom of God affect social justice and reform? Absolutely, 100%. You better believe that if Jesus rose from the grave, that it affects our everyday life. Amen? Yes and amen. But if it's just this, if it's just digging wells so people have clean water, or if it's just feeding the hungry, then all we're doing is giving people clean water and giving people food and then sending them to hell. If we're not telling them that there is a God that loves them and there is a Savior and there is something more important than just physical needs. Listen, Jesus is not just this social activist. Or how about this, um, the divine genie, right? 
And so there's a moment of crisis in the doctor's report, or there's a family conflict, or there's something that's happening. And so now we send out, you know, pray for me and do this. And then even in our prayers, we're asking God. And if you view Jesus this way, your prayers are primarily just asking God and asking God and asking God and asking God. And then even in moments like this, we're even negotiating with God. We're saying like, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. God, if you allow this to happen, I'll serve in kids' side, but not on the Sunday that they have the donkey. And like, so God, if you do this, then I'll do this. And like, and, and God is this like genie that zips in and gives us wishes and stuff. Or how about the last one? Um, Jesus, the superhuman hero. And what we do when we read the scriptures is we literally devoid him of any human attributes. That Jesus is fully God and he could do this and he could say this and the more we tease that out, we separate the humanity of Jesus and don't realize that Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a best friend. That Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. That Jesus knows what it's like for his family to reject him. You see, Jesus isn't just some superhuman comic book hero. And listen, all of Palm Sunday is answering the question, then who is Jesus? Then what is happening? And listen, this is our thesis, and this is the big idea today, and it's this. Palm Sunday teaches us that Jesus Christ is our modest Messiah. Our modest Messiah. And those words are chosen very carefully. You see, in the passage, there's a lot of compare and contrast. I mean, Jesus appears to be like really, really in control, but at the same time, he's like on a donkey. And like, what does that mean? And leading up to Jesus' life at this point, he's been telling people to be quiet. But today on Palm Sunday is the full declaration. I love what one commentator said. He said this, For much of Jesus' ministry, he urged people to be quiet about who he was. When he healed people, he told them not to say anything. When he confronted demons and they recognized him as the Son of God, he told them to be quiet. That's because it wasn't time for him to declare himself as the Messiah. But today, on Palm Sunday, the time had come that the Messiah is here. But it shatters the people's expectations because they're saying, God, save us. And save us like we expect. So what I want to do is I want to look at two things. I want to break this down and look at the Messiah and then the modest aspect of him being the Messiah. And then bridge the application to your life. What does this mean? The first thing is this, is that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, look at what Matthew says in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So Matthew's giving us a hint, a clue, that there was a prophecy that was happening. And man, I think oftentimes in church, we just sort of throw words around, and maybe we were used to words, and we're just like, oh yeah, sure, Jesus is the Messiah, that was a prophecy. Well, like, what's a prophecy? What does that mean? A prophecy is God um, proclaiming, not predicting, but declaring that something will happen and giving us signs as to what that will look like. And so there is a prophecy surrounding what the Messiah is going to be like for the people of God to know. And listen, these prophecies were crucial to the people of God, just like they're crucial to us today. 
Because in moments when it seemed like God wasn't working, or in moments when people were in dismay and they were under the suppression of the Roman government, all they had to live by and to go off of were the prophecies that God gave them. So in moments of despair or in moments of when they question, God, are you working? God, are you still there? In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there are 400 years of silence and the people are living on these prophecies. And it's prophesied twice about Jesus coming in and entering into the city a certain way. You see, I always knew about the Zechariah prophecy because it's quoted in Matthew's gospel. But this prophecy actually goes all the way back to Genesis and to Jacob. It says this, the scepter, the king, God's king, who's going to come and, and make it all right again. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Here it is. He will tether his donkey to a vine and his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. My goodness, that's an epic prophecy. But in this prophecy, it plays out that this Messiah, this king, it's going to involve kind of a Shrek character. It's going to involve this donkey somehow for some reason, right? And it's going to tether it to the vine and Israel was known as the vine of God. But then there's the prophecy in Zechariah, and it comes again. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. What does this mean? Why are these prophecies so important? Listen, I mean, this is hundreds of years before Jesus does this act on Palm Sunday. The Genesis prophecy is like a thousand years before this ever happens. What are the implications? How does this bridge the context to our life? Well, the first one is this. If Jesus is the Messiah, it means you can trust him. You see, Matthew's trying to tell us something that it's to fulfill. It's to fulfill the promise that God, a thousand years before this happened, promised something. And listen, and wake up, Jerusalem, because God is fulfilling his promise. God is cashing the check that he wrote to us. This is good news. This is important for us today. Um, maybe this will help. I told you a number of years ago, our oldest son, Roman, was, was having some eye trouble and going to different doctors and literally on a journey that took us like a year and a half we ended up in St. Louis at Cardinal Glennon to see a specialist, and we were told that there was going to have to be some corrective surgery to correct some of the muscles in the eye. And so Courtney and I were there in Cardinal Glennon, and we were there in the doctor's office. And, you know, you're nervous, man. This is my baby. This is my boy, all right? This is my namesake, right? And so you're nervous, and then the doctor's coming in and out, and he's talking to us, and we're asking questions, and Mama's got a lot more questions than Dad does. And, and then he would leave the room, and then... We would kind of Google some stuff, like, well, what about that, right? If you're a doctor, I'm so sorry that you have to deal with us Googling things coming in, like, well, I read on WebMD last night that this, you know, and so we're nervous, and this is going on, and I remember looking up in his office, and there were, you know, these plaques and these degrees, and 
there was a fellowship here for seven years and then this degree. And I'm like, this guy has more degrees than Fahrenheit. I mean, this guy has got a ton of education here. And then it dawned on me. These are like his credentials. He's literally, I'm sitting here nervous about what's going to happen. And I'm surrounded in a room of all of these credentials that are literally shouting on the wall, he's capable to take care of your son. You know what these prophecies are? They're promises. And God's cashing in on the promise. And the promise is this, that Jesus is capable to take care of your situation. Listen, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what family situation it is. I don't know what job situation, but goodness gracious, in light of last year and this year, it's probably a lot. And listen, the word for you today is that you can trust him is that he is good, and that, listen, God is batting a thousand on all of his promises. And so now we read the scriptures with even more faith in a way that they did, because we get to look and see that God fulfilled all of these past scriptures. And so now the scriptures that are yet to be fulfilled, we live with hope and promise. Listen, today the exhortation is that you can trust Jesus. But the second one is this, is that it produces something, which means that you can obey him. You know what my favorite verse is in, in, in the entire passage? I love it. Verse 6. Okay? So Jesus is obviously like in command and control. And he tells his disciples, the church fathers think that it's James and John who have to go, dude, we don't have any biblical evidence for this, but they say that because they were known as the sons of thunder because they were the ones that were like, hey, call fire down on heaven. Like, can we do that? Do we have that superpower, right? And so Jesus tells disciples to go find this animal, which would be the equivalent of like your car, okay? So Jesus is like, hey, guys, listen, we're going to go into town. There's going to be a Honda Civic parked on the side of the road. What I need you to do is I need you to jimmy the door, okay? Need you to unscrew the antenna and do, you're like, Jason, how do you know how to do that? Different life before Jesus, okay, right? You need to get in. And if anybody's like, that's not your car, you're supposed to say, the Lord needs it. And then it's supposed to work out, okay? So I'm not saying that you need to try this this afternoon, okay? The Lord needs it, okay? And you're supposed to be in control of all of this. And then it's like going to happen. And then I love it. Verse six, here it is. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. I love that. That would be an awesome life verse for somebody. That just very simply, we did what Jesus told us to do. Listen, that's what it is to be a disciple. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Do you think they had questions? Do you think on the way to hijack the donkey, they were like, what, what's going to happen? What if somebody, like, I'm sure they had a ton of questions. I'm sure they didn't, listen, I'm sure they didn't understand why Jesus told them to do that. And do you know when they got their answer? On the other side of obedience, after they had already done it. Do you see where we're going with this now? What's the situation in your life? What is the act of obedience that God is calling you to? What are you discussing at your women's table on Mondays or the men's table on Wednesdays? What's the prayer request that you've been praying over and over and over and over and over and over? And the answer to that prayer request is actually on the other side of your obedience. 
You see, this is what it is to follow Jesus. And do you know that these two things are linked together? What we like to do is we like to focus on the obedience, but primarily we like to focus on the disobedience. So what we think accountability groups are is like everybody get together, confess all your sins, talk about how you disobeyed Jesus this week, cry, feel bad about that, come back and do it again next week, and then that's my accountability group. Absolutely not. That sounds miserable, okay? What it is is an opportunity. The reason why we don't obey is because we don't trust. You can draw a direct line from whatever sin, whatever act of disobedience is going on in your life as a follower of Jesus, and I can show you where you don't trust Jesus. You see, our behavior is only the fruit. There's a root, and the root is our heart and what we believe. Parents, you know this. As parents, we don't just want behavior, though that would be nice. That would be nice, right? We don't just want, like, I'm a robot. I'm like, we want our child's heart, we want them to know that the reason why we're asking them to do this is because we love them and we have good things for them. Listen, it's no different for us being God's children. All the way back to the garden, this was the problem. That Adam and Eve were there, our first parents. And, 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 and he said, not of that tree. There was a choice. And then the enemy comes along and just very simply asks, did God really say? Did God really say not to do that? And then it says there was something that happened that the enemy then says, essentially, God's holding out on you. Oh, God doesn't want you to do that because he knows that if you do that, you can be just like him. And listen, here's the lie. God is not good enough. And you're going to have to take this situation into your own hands. You see, there was a mistrust then the act of disobedience. And so what God is showing us in and through the person of Jesus Christ is that we can trust him and that we can obey him because he is the good Messiah. So the question today on this Palm Sunday is, where are you not trusting God? Is it in your marriage? Is it with those children is it at that job? You see, the cries of Hosanna were, God, save us this way. Save us this way. Everybody has the declaration of God, save us. But then what happened is, is Jesus shattered their expectations on how he was going to save them. He saved them on Good Friday, on a cross. <laughs> I mean, listen, that's what the crowd was doing. They were literally shouting in one breath, God, save us, save us, and save us this way. And then when God was working and began to save, they went, oh, we don't want to get saved like that, right? We'll translate it to 2021. God, save my husband. God, save my children. And then God starts to work in your heart. And then we go, oh, God, not that way. God, not that way. Because that's going to require brutal honesty and trust. And I'm going to have to cling to you every day. And I'm going to have to bring people in on the situation. And that's going to make me feel. And do you see, we can miss it. And we can become the people saying that in the crowd and completely miss what God is doing. Listen, Jesus is the Messiah. 
He is the Savior. But the second thing is this, is that he's the modest Messiah. The modest Messiah. I read that word this week, and I haven't been able to shake it. And the Oxford English Dictionary defines the word modest like this. Modest means to be restrained by a sense of humility. Listen, long before, like, if you grew up with a fundamentalist background like me, and you hear the word modest, you're like modesty, and you hear, like, culottes and stuff like that, okay? Listen, long before it's anything like that, goodness gracious, long before it's anything like that, the word modest means that you're restrained by humility. Listen, that you have the capability to do something, that everybody knows that you're capable, you know, but you're restrained out of a sense of Humility, and listen, this comes from Jesus being on the donkey. The donkey, really? Like, that's the thing? Listen, this is so significant. Because back then, remember, Roman suppression, Roman rule, the horse was the symbol of power and might. That's why later on, by the way, Jesus only rides a donkey one time. He comes back in the end riding a white horse. And the horse symbolizes victory and power, and authority, and all of that. And this is Jesus' moment. He's riding in. He's entering into the city. And he chooses, out of restraint of humility, not to flex those muscles, but rather to come in humility. I love what Frederick Dale Bruner, a Bible scholar, says. He says this, Donkeys are lowly creatures, and in their way, they actually say a lot. They're slow, stubborn, They're work animals for the poor, and they're not too handsome. Earthly animals by the utmost, and yet a prophesied donkey who will bear a king into Jerusalem says that on this particular journey, which is to be viewed both from above, seeing Jesus' divinity, and from below, seeing his humanity, we have Jesus as he wants to be seen, as Emmanuel the true God with us, in a truly human way, at our level, we have God on a donkey. What does this mean? If modesty is restrained out of humility, that tells me something. You can only live modestly when you're secure in your identity. You see, if you're not secure... You have to show what you have. You have to flex those muscles. You have to enter in the conversation. And when somebody says, hey, um, you know, I just bought this and I just got this. And you're like, yeah, well, we just got that two years ago. Or, hey, we're going here. Well, I've been there. And, hey, how about you? You've got to enter in because your identity is your worth. And you constantly have to show that you're enough and that you have that. But here Jesus is secure in his identity. He knows what the Father says about him, so he doesn't have to worry about what the crowds are saying about him. So what does this mean for us? Well, think about how do we enter into conversations? On a horse or on a donkey? Do we enter into relationships always being in the position of power and of authority and declaring our might and who we are? Or are we secure in who God says we are? Therefore, we don't now feel threatened in conversations. We don't have to jockey for position. By the way, when you're secure in your identity, 
things like forgiveness tend to come, I don't want to say easier, but you understand the goal of it now. Because see, when you're on your horse, you want to make people pay. And listen, I'm willing to have the conversation, Pastor. I am good and ready, and just I'm just waiting on that phone call. I'm just waiting on them to call me because they were the one last year at our house when we sat down and then the family and they said, I'm not the one that has the problem. I'm just waiting on them to call me and everything's going to be fine. Hey, let's look up here. How's that going for you? You still waiting on that phone call? Still holding that breath? Listen, I would love nothing more than to shatter this dream right here today, but look up here. They're probably never going to call. But as Roman says, if possible... As much as depends on you, live peacefully with all. Well, how can you live peacefully with others? How can you offer peace? You can't offer something you don't have. And that's something that strikes me in this passage. Jesus seems to be very calm. Very, I mean, remember, it's stirred up. The city's going crazy. There's chaos. There's crowds. There's pressing in. But that's not what stands out the most. Do you know who else stands out as being calm to me? The donkey. It's an unridden, unbroken donkey. That was part of the prophecy. Now think about this. People, I mean, you're around animals. You're around horses. You guys know some of this stuff. That anytime I've ever ridden or done anything like that, they're like, hey, be calm. The horse can sense. If you're going to get crazy, they're going to get crazy. Like all of this type of stuff. And what I see is an animal that is calm amidst all the chaos. Why? Because he knows who's riding him. Jesus is the calm amidst all of the chaos that's going on. So what does that mean for us as his followers? Here's a question. Are you the calm or are you the chaos? What are you in life? When you come home, is the wife and the kids now a little bit on edge because here comes the chaos? Are you a safe place? Are you, listen, if our king is showing us this and we are citizens of the king, then this directly affects the way in which we live our lives. And the reason why we are calm is because who Jesus is. And you know what's interesting? I was talking to one of the guys out there today. As the people are saying, Hosanna, which is save us now, they had an expectation about how God was going to save them. And Jesus is riding a donkey, and he hears them saying that, save us. And he knows. They think it's going to be some political act of power and might. When you go out today and you leave, I want you to look at the donkeys. And you can get up on the ridge and look at them from the top. Because when you look at them from the top and you see on their back, there's a brown cross. Clear as day. Jesus is riding on this animal looking at this symbol, hearing people say, save us, and knows that the way in which he's going to save them is by dying on the cross. This is what's so significant about all of this. Palm Sunday is answering the question, who is Jesus? And he is our modest Messiah that leads us to love him and trust him. And that trust leads to acts of obedience. And it also shatters our expectations as to how we expect God to work in relationships and do this, that, and the other. So listen, 
right now, whatever situation you're in, if you're thinking, gosh, the relationship looks like that it's on edge, that God's not working, that this looks like a failure, listen, I'm here to tell you that that's right where God wants to work and that God is doing something, even though we can't see it. So what's the effect on that? If Jesus is our modest Messiah and King, what are our daily lives to look like? I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians as to what it is to live in the kingdom. In fact, um, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition, here it is, to lead a quiet life. <laughs> is that what you were expecting? A quiet, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Why? Because we have a modest king. And when the world says that it must be through power and might and aggression and look out for yours and you're right and you need to let people know that and you're in the position of power and they hurt you and they should pay and you should, the Christians are the non-anxious presence in a very, very anxious world. Do you know people like this? Do you know somebody who has that inner quietness and that peace about them? It's so attractive, isn't it? I mean, it, they literally stand out. And this is what we see that Jesus does. So here's what I want to do in closing for us today as the band comes up. If Palm Sunday teaches us that Jesus is our modest Messiah, I want to do something. It says that they laid down their cloaks sort of as a symbol of submission. They released something. So Jesus could walk on something that was valuable to them. In just a moment, we're going to say a corporate prayer together. And as we pray, I want us to have our hands closed today. Uh, and, and listen, I just want us to have a tangible application. With your hands closed, I want it to symbolize whatever situation that you've got, whatever relationship, whatever you've got going on and that you've been praying about and that you have an expectation as to how God is going to work and save you in that situation. And then as we pray, I'm going to have us open our hands. And when you open your hands, I want that to symbolize to you today of you letting go of that expectation, of you laying down that cloak, and of you saying, God, this situation is yours, that Jesus, you are my king, and no matter how you work in this scenario, you are good, but I can't hold on to this anymore. Listen, you can't grab Jesus' hand and follow him while still holding on to your expectations or whatever else that you have. We must surrender it. That's what Palm Sunday teaches us. So Westside, stand to your feet right where you're at, and there will be words on the screen for us to say a prayer together. So Westside, with our hands just kind of out front, closed in front of us, let us pray this prayer out loud together. Loving God, on this day, your son entered the rebellious city that later rejected him. We confess that our wills are as rebellious as Jerusalem's. Our faith is often more show than substance. Our hearts are in need of cleansing. Have mercy on us, son of David, savior of our lives. 
Help us to lay at your feet all we have and all we are, trusting you to forgive, to heal, and to receive us as your own through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. With every head bowed and just hands out in front closed, Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today just creating space for you as our Father to speak to us. God, if we're honest with ourselves, we have expectations. And quite frankly, a lot of the disappointments that we have in our own lives are disappointments of something that you've actually never promised to us. And so God, right now, today, as your people, we see you, Jesus, as our modest Messiah, good, fulfilling the prophecies, that you are our King. You're not a way to God, you're the way. You're alive today. God, may we trust you with this situation that we have in our hands. God, some of us, it's our children. It's that wayward child. It's our unsaved son or daughter, a family member. God, for some of us, it's, it's our health that we hold in our hands. God, for some of us, it's our marriages. It's that relationship that we never thought would be here like it is. We're holding on to so much. And right now, as your people, we open our hands. And Westside, open your hands, God. We release this situation to you. Jesus, we lay it down to our King our Messiah, and we trust this to you. You are good, and we will do what you say. Have mercy on us. We pray this all in the holy, in the precious, and in the good name of Jesus Christ. Amen.